Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 24, discussing Excalibur number 23, Here Comes the Judge, we've smashed through the window of Ileana Rasputin and Kit Pride's penthouse to arrive at the penultimate issue of the Cross Time Caper. And guess what? Alan Davis is here doing stellar work as always on a densely packed Judge Dredd inspired issue. Excalibur number 23 was originally published in June 1990 and the creative team is Chris Clare. Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on pencils, Glynis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzachowski and Kevin Cunningham on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Your wisdom has forged this ring. Hereafter, so that we remember our bonds, we shall always come together in a circle to hear and tell of deeds good and brave. I will build a Round table where this fellowship shall meet. And a hall about the table. And a castle about the hall. And I will marry. (laughs) And the land will have an heir to wield Excalibur. Knights of the round table. We are not dreading chatting about this week's issue with a perfectly placed guest who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your regular enforcers. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I do lots of things, too many things sometimes, and most of those things involve talking about sex, gender, and representation in academic and popular places like ComicsXF and the Middle Spaces, and a podcast I co-host with Andrew of this podcast called Three Panel Contrast. I remain, as always, Kirk Bogner's unofficial PR manager, and I am excited to defend him today in which he pauses to kiss alternate universe Megan while escaping from the police, which results in her getting killed. Um, but, you know, he, lo- he looks good doing it, and, and and we'll talk about it. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but but we'll talk about it. Mav, if you want to introduce yourself. Uh, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick. I am a PhD student. I'm an adjunct instructor at Duquesne University and Mount Aloysius College. I am the host of another podcast as well called Box Popcast, where we discuss lots of different pop culture issues, including comics and movies and uh, TV and pro wrestling and and recently alcohol. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I also talk a lot about things like sex and gender and race and class and comics as well. And I am the and it's my Judge Dredd impression because I don't care what anybody says that version of the movie is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I'm sure our guest has opinions. Andrew, take it away. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. Uh, I'm the project lead for the Claremont run. Um, and we didn't talk about this in advance, but um, Magic is my favorite character like, Me too. ever. Me too. So, so <laughs> Anna's love and apparently Mav's love and my love are intersecting a little bit in this issue. So that'll be a fun thing to talk about. Not enough, but yes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing your opinions opinions on her, Andrew. I set up a question for you. We'll We'll talk about it for sure. Excellent. So we are joined, as I mentioned, by a wonderful guest who knows a lot about the world of Judge Dredd in Scott Weatherly. Welcome, Scott. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Well, firstly, it's always great to talk comics, but, you know, also great to talk Dredd to uh, anybody. <laughs> we will give you plenty of opportunity to do that. Yes, I'll tell them. I, I'll I tell have the... many questions, so I'm, I'm okay. excited about this. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, let's, let's tell the listeners a little bit about Scott. So Scott is a, in his own words, not our words, a regular old project manager who started exploring 20th century pop culture, leading to the podcast's 20th century geek and stories out of time and space. Working on these has introduced him to some fantastic people and opportunities, including the chance to edit a book called Judging Dread with Seacourt, which I checked out this past week and it's really excellent we will definitely be linking that on our twitter and in the show notes so scott i know your recent book about judge dread and i would love to learn a little bit more about that and we'll give you a chance to do that but i was also wondering about your history with x-men and with excalibur in particular i think you already had the issue at your disposal so is this have you read excalibur previously or is this your first time uh, no i've read bits and pieces it's one, i've probably read the first in fact, I've read to the end of Cross Time Caper. Um, I've got the epic okay. collections. I've been going through it that way. But um, yeah, my, my my exposure to the X Men really starts with the 1992 cartoon. To be honest, we come back to that a lot on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And um, I've, I've dabbled with the comics, you know, that side of the Marvel universe. But Excalibur, I, I didn't come to Excalibur through the X Men. I came through it sort of almost like through a back door, really. When I got I got back into I sort of dabbled throughout the nineties and then sort of got into comics quite heavily in the, the early two thousands and I was looking for obscure characters I was like you know I want I want my niche who can I have that's mine yeah. kind of thing <laughs> um, I I landed on Moon Knight as it goes oh um, nice. Um, but I also found there was a lot of I found I found out about um, Marvel UK and obviously they created all that sort of their corner and actually I came across Union Jack first and then Union Jack led me to the Paul Cornell Captain Britain MI thirteen um, yeah. run a bit later on and then I basically sort of backtracked Captain Britain I was like oh so who's this you know who are these British uh, superheroes and I want to know more about that tracking it back taking it back all the way really to the original uh, Captain Britain and found a few issues on eBay and then got to jumped really to the um, Alan Moore years um, so and then I, yeah and I was like oh this is brilliant this is amazing yeah. you know this yeah. is like this is weird and it's twisted and it's you know it's fantastic and then that led me into Excalibur and the different versions of that so really it was yeah it was through as I happened as I often do this thing like with 20th Century Geek I often start in one place and then I work backwards and I end up starting on something completely different so yeah it, it was more through like the national uh, heroes and, and Marvel UK really I accessed uh, Excalibur first time around this is a big question and I don't want to get too off track too soon 
soon, but <laughs> what do you make of sort of the transition of the Brian Braddock, Captain Britain character from sort of that Alan Moore era to Excalibur? Did you find that a big change in the character? Or did you find it just sort of a continuation that made sense? I think that it's one of those things that when you are invested in comics and when you've, you know, you've lived them and you've read them for quite a long time, you sort of get used to these sort of jarring character changes, you know, especially for sort of like more obscure characters where they're less established. I mean, I'm a Moon Knight fan. We've never had a character. <laughs> He's changed yeah. multiple times. So more obscure characters, I think I'm quite sort of okay with it. It is quite jarring. Um, I've, I've been listening back to episodes of your podcast and you make a very good point in your very first episode of how like, more stuff is, it has, you know, um, Brian, in, in almost like a, it's a dark buffoon in some parts and they try obviously not, not to make him more serious but you know becomes a bit more light-hearted i'm glad they make that change but again i think the thing with brian is again brian braddock's had multiple changes like you know if you read the paul cornell run compared to this or yeah, yeah. if you read like the x-force <clears throat> the uh, rick remender where you, you know they go into the omniverse and stuff like again it's it's a, it's a slightly different character so i i wasn't it, it's it's obviously jarring but i think you get used to those kinds of slight turns of character every now and then okay fair enough yeah i want to talk about brian and megan's story a little bit in this particular issue because i actually it was one of the brian and megan stories that i've actually enjoyed from excalibur so far but um we will come back to that but let's do our issue summary and then we'll get right into some of this dread intertext and some of these finer moments from the comic so we know many of our lovely listeners are reading along with the pod thank you always for your dearly dear support but without apology this time we will start our convo with that plot summary <laughs> always apologizing we commence proceedings in media res in a penthouse in london on earth 23238 occupied by demon sorceress iliana rasputin and her employer crime boss kit pride iliana is using a crystal ball thingy to spy an excalibur still lost between dimensions on their train for reasons that aren't made entirely clear kit orders iliana to summon excalibur which she starts to do then there's a raid on the premises by the judge dread inspired justicers advocate doug ramsey tries to delay the justicers but excalibur do a better job their train crashing into the penthouse and causing plenty of mayhem him. Kit falls out the smashed window and Brian and Megan try to save her. This proves difficult as the toxic air and water of this world interfere with their powers. Meanwhile, Kurt is accosted by Justicer Cadbury, who seems to be a human version of himself. Predictably tailless, human, Kurt sucks. Kurt has little trouble dealing with him until he's severely zapped by the laser gun of Chief Justicer Bull. Justicer Bull and her crew want to take all the members of Excalibur into custody, but Ileana reminds them that they only had a warrant for Kit. They can, however, take Nightcrawler. Visible mutants are automatically illegal on this world. From there, we check back in with Brian, Megan, and Kit, who are having a horrible time, Megan and Kit literally burning inside and out from the toxicity of the world. Brian finds them temporary refuge on the edge of a building, but they're soon attacked by an army of demonic creatures. Thankfully, Megan manages to transform her body into an armored form capable of enduring the toxic atmosphere. She helps Brian fight off the demons, but Kit nevertheless dies in Brian's arms, her dying breath bemoaning Ileana's betrayal. In the old Bailey, Nightcrawler is tried and convicted, sentenced to prison and genetic modification. He's tossed in a cell with other visible mutants, where he rescues this world's version of Megan, seen in monster form she sported years ago in Captain Britain comics from a violent assault. When the guards begin to transfer the prisoners, Kurt teleports to escape his chains and takes Megan with him in a stolen flying car. Unfortunately, she's killed by the Justicers. She dies on Kurt's shoulder after shifting to the blue form modeled after him. While this has been going on, back in Kit's tower, Alistair tends to Rachel, who's weak and depleted from powering Widget. Ileana tries to use Alistair's desire for Rachel to manipulate him into helping her take over the world. Then it's on to the action-packed conclusion in which everyone converges on the penthouse. Ileana becomes the Dark Child, 
child and this dimension's Brian and Betsy show up to help defeat Ileana explain the history of the Justicers, who were formed after some type of superhero civil war. We end on the possibility of reform, and Excalibur are freed for now to continue their seemingly endless, but actually will be ending quite soon journey. <laughs> so um, I'm skipping right over first impressions today because we have a lot of stuff to talk about, and I want to start with this Judge Dredd context. Well, I won't move completely fast past our first impressions. Did we all enjoy this issue? Because I'm going to assume that we all did and that we're very relieved to be at this issue. But if there's anybody that really hated the issue, you can speak now because I am curious. I do have one point of contention. Like, I love okay. everything about this issue, but I want it to be a five issue story arc. Yes. There's a lot I, of world here for sure. Yeah. yeah exactly. I like this issue. I like a lot of what happens in this issue. I was looking forward, this was one of the ones that I was looking forward to the last several weeks because I'm like, well, let's see what this is like when I get here because I want to see if I understand this better than I did when I was 15. I do not. Um, <laughs> I have, I have. I mean, I enjoy it. I have many questions, um, some of which Scott, I think, will be able to fill in, some of which are just that I think um, I have exactly Andrew's take that this could have been way better if they didn't try to fit 100 pages of plot into 22 <laughs> pages of story because <laughs> there's a, there's a lot here there's really a lot and part of it is also me being shortchanged on again this is my uh, like like andrew Iliano was my favorite character at the time probably still is i was looking forward to it when i saw the, when i saw it and she doesn't get an, enough to do and then she's going to disappear from continuity for about a decade 15 20 years <laughs> after this <Yeah>. story <laughs> so so that hurt yeah I have many thoughts. Okay, well, we'll get into but all I of do that like stuff. It. Yeah, I, do I definitely like want mm -hmm. to talk about the Ileana thing. And I, I'm not mm -hmm. debating about whether, like, I could have had 50 issues of all of this story for sure yeah. because I <laughs> love everything that we do get here. But um, let's start with that dread intertext, as I mentioned. So I'm going to hope that Scott can help us out a little bit here. I know various of us know, like, a couple of things about dread. I've never really read any dread comics at all, though. So I'm, I'm, other than knowing some of the cultural context from reading the work of Scott and his contributors and judging dread, I don't know a heck of a lot. So Scott, so making use of your positioning as a Judge Dredd, and I am calling you a Judge Dredd scholar, so you have to get used to it, a Judge Dredd scholar and a lifelong fan. Um, can you tell us a little bit just about like the history and context of Dredd? When was the character of Judge Dredd created? And what are some of the cultural contexts that those comics pull in that we might be dealing with here? Dredd is is oddly a, a byproduct of, of the comic failures uh, of the, the early 70s. There's that comic called Action. Uh, from the early 70s and it was a, an all boys comic <clears throat> in that time they had like the girls comics and the boys comics and it was all very 70s and action got pulled up by the government and by the press raked over because there were several stories that were for one of the advocating violence against the police uh, there's, a, there's a very famous cover of a bunch of kids like literally wailing on a police officer and they weren't happy with it uh, and so this thing got pulled action got pulled and it got there was not quite the comic books code of like the 1950s but there was some rules put in place. And one of the things that got put in place was you can't show contemporary police officers being put under threat or you can't show sort of like, you know, realistic kind of violence and this other stuff. So a guy called Pat Mills, who was very, very big and still is very big in English comics or British comics, said, do you know what, then we are going to make all of this sci-fi tropes and if you can't show red blood we can show green blood and if we can't show <laughs> uh dirty harry or you know dixon of dark green beating people up then we will send them into the future and it all became it was basically sort of like to, to prove a point and so they did and they created 2000 ad and in that like 2000 ad is an anthology 
science fiction fantasy comic first released in 1977 and it's populated by all these things so you have uh, there was, it started with a lineup harlem heroes which is a future basketball team which is closer to like rollerball a comic called flesh in which uh, future farmers go back to the prehistoric time to harvest dinosaurs uh, character like rogue trooper who was a soldier on a sort of polluted planet a, a lone soldier fighting this war and then judge dread who is a law enforcement officer uh, of a future uh, future world, a future city called Mega City One, which is a vast city of, at that point, 800 million citizens. And following an event, and this again, in 77, they hadn't really filled out the whole backstory, but following a large event, large portions of America had become unpopulated or unlivable. And so populations are now living in these mega cities. And these mega cities are judged and, 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 and sort of ruled by the justice system. And the justice system has a chief judge who sits at the top, and then judges that dispense the law below them. And these judges are judge, jury, and executioner when needed and so dread sort of was introduced as just this really sort of like dark satire of police that was what it was supposed to be this you know i said it was like if we can't show dixon of Doctor green beating people we're going to have this character and he's going to have a really elaborate costume and in the first the first issue of dread or just dread he he arrests a guy and his punishment is to be put in this open air prison and there's no guards there's no rails but it's surrounded by a roadway and all the cars are going 200 miles an hour so they're never getting off <laughs> and then and he's left there so he's basically left on like an island uh, like a, a roundabout and then it sort of grew from there so that that was sort of the thing but it was it grew it was predominantly written by a guy called john wagner uh, the character was created as a design by a guy called carlos Esquera. and wagner is is, is scottish american and he's got this really sort of dark satirical sensibility and both he and pat mills are very sort of left-leaning and from 77 onwards it just becomes a satire of british and american politics and culture and like you know some of it less subtle than others but yeah that, that's sort of that's the, the sort of the context of dread really i mean i think one of the things that well i'll let you speak to this actually because i know it's something that you bring up in the introduction to judging dread that the character and the comics just haven't really caught on with north american audiences the same way that they caught on with british audiences and obviously the comic is produced there so i mean there's distribution issues but i mean why do you think that is though like i mean it's set in north america it's a satire of north america why does this have so much more appeal for british readers than it does for american ones i think it's interesting because we have got you know quite a few american contributors um and so i think it does appeal to an american audience i think it's the same american audience that you know is very much supporting very indie comics you know sort of especially in the 80s and 90s one thing is i had conversations with people about this i know people i've introduced people to dread and they haven't really got it or they haven't liked it or whatever and you know from the from the american over the other side of the pond one of the things i find most interesting is dread is a figure of authority like he, he literally is the law. You know, I am the law. Yeah, yeah. And superheroes, for the most part, aren't. aren't. You know, they are. They are sort of like uh, vigilantes or you know, the outlaw, the, the hero outlaw. They 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 are sort of going to support truth, justice. Uh, in the American way, but they are outside of the law, and Dread is the law. So he's this sort of figure of sort of he's almost like the anti superhero. There was a crossover between Dread and Batman in the early nineties, Judgment on Gotham, and in that, like Dread's whole point is like, no, you're you're a vigilante. I don't care if you are pursuing uh, at that point Judge Death. I don't give a, you know, it. Doesn't doesn't matter to me. The point is you're a criminal because you're a vigilante, and that's the line. And so I think people struggle with that because Dread is for one, and he's a fascist for a start. Um, he lives in the fascistic, you know world and so there are times that there's been stories where you're like yeah you go you know you stop them and then they'll end the story with him 
<laughs> well, for example, so there's a really good story where like he, he saves a number of people and you're like, oh, it's amazing. And then it ends with him beating someone for them littering. And you're sort of like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. he, he is still that person. <laughs> and so I think, you know, he, he he's a very complex character to enjoy because, you know, the, the book is going to continually challenge you. I mean, you know, it's, it's not like with even some of the darker superheroes like you know they they they'll challenge you but up to a point they're always redeemable mm-hmm. but with dread you know you're always that little bit unsure if you should it's like Rorschach as well you're like oh, you know and yeah. he's, yeah, he's cool design it's cool character shouldn't really like him i mean there's a there's a book <laughs> uh, there's a story called america um released 1991 and it, and the whole the whole story is about a, a young girl called america she's named by her parents for the country that they uh, emigrate to through uh, circumstances her parents lose their jobs and because they lose their jobs they then get you know they then lose their house and they have to go to commit a certain series of crimes to sort of survive they get judged they get executed and she then becomes this sort of advocate for anarchy and bringing down the judge system and so it follows her as this sort of she's never quite well she becomes a sort of terrorist at the end and terrorist is probably a strong word but throughout it judge dread acts as this sort of like shadow this demon in the background constantly and i'm not you know i'm going to spoil it but it's, I still recommend reading it because it's one of the best Dread stories. It ends with her sort of being lulled into a trap. And in this trap, she sort of thinks it's a protest and she thinks she's going to bomb the, the, the Statue of Judgment, which is a big judge, which literally stands over the Statue of Liberty. Like, l- literally stands over the Statue of Liberty. Uh, and when they're the judges, open fire, execute her. And that, that's literally, you, you are watching this as a participant. You know, and yeah. it's it's really brutal. And then the, the next episode is like, and now back to the sort of the humour of some other person <laughs> that's doing something wacky in Mega City One, and you're like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm not. How do I? You know, you you talked about the the jarringness of Brian Braddock going from Alan Moore yeah. to to uh, Chris Claremont. Yeah, week to week, Dread can do the same thing, and it's sort of um, it, it's fascinating to see that. Uh, and I think sometimes people people struggle with that. Yeah, I mean, there's this plausible deniability in sort of American superhero comics where the characters support the law and the status quo, but are ostensibly outside of it. So they don't have to be associated with the state in that way. And that's very useful to like mm. America's self-image, right? Yeah. But yeah, I can I totally can see what you're saying, though, like about the Judge Dread comics implicate you in the violence. And that can be very uncomfortable for people who are used to comics kind of rewarding their sense of outsiderness, which superhero comics and protects perhaps particularly X-Men comics tend to do well one of the exactly this implication of like you know you you are part of the violence one of the first stories that really struck me uh, when I started to read Dread in the, the late 80s. There's a story called The Apocalypse War, and it's a Cold War allegory, like Megacity in North America is invaded by the Soviet versions of um, the Soviet bloc. And it, so it's this big sort of... An, the Cold War becomes an actual war. And they're firing nuclear weapons at each other, so more parts of, this, of Megacity are destroyed. Again, the story ends with Dread invading the Sov city gets in there and it's, it's like an espionage thing like they sneak in they've done all these sort of bits it's really cool and if it was a hollywood story it would reach with like, you know the conclusion of being like he kills their version of the chief judge and that would be it but that's not enough like they, he does that and then he goes back and they find out that they're threatening to launch the last of the nuclear missiles on north america and so judge dread passes judgment on the entire soviet block and what he does is reverse the missiles and fires them back, killing I think something like fifty million people. And so like uh, there's a there's a one of the judges, the Soviet judges, says to him like he pleads for these people. And it just has a panel of uh, dread responses, just denied. And then he presses the button, and you're and you're reading it as a kid, like you know you're reading this, and you're like 
yeah. Like if this was a Hollywood movie, <laughs> like there, you know, there'd be that that moment of like with Rocky Four, where they're like, you know, if you can change and I can change, we can all change. It'd be all everyone would start hugging and stuff. Yeah, that's not dread. Dread's like, no. no, you you are a threat to us, and the only way to do that is to eliminate you, and that's sort of it. So it can be brutal. That and that, I think, so that's one of the things I find people struggle with the most. I'm sort of almost worried now to ask you about the intertext of dread in this comic because I'm not sure that it preserves that complexity. But I'll give you a first sort of for the chance to answer, you know, what you think this comic is doing with that Judge Dread intertext and if you think it's doing something interesting with it or not. I think other of us will have more sort of things to say about how we feel like themes of justice run through this comic, but guest privilege, Judge Dread, scholar and fan privilege, what did you feel about the use of kind of this Judge Dread intertext in in this comic? What was it doing here? Well, first, I thought it was a fun issue. I really I really enjoyed it. Yeah about sort of the sense of it i thought it was great and it has some it what it is it pokes fun at dread and i kind of like some of the fun that it's poking um, early on it sort of has that introduction and you get sort of like a, a, a view down on this you know this city with this complex weaving of roads in between you know into in amongst you and that is a mega city view that's definitely a mega city and it says like you know ever wonder what would happen if urban development uh, got totally out of hand and it's sort of like, you know, yeah, these crazy sci-fi cities, like, they're ridiculous. Like, you know, we know this is silly, but it, it's it's dread light for the most part. Like, you know, the, the justices are, are relatively brutal, you know, but they're, they don't, they're not lethal, which I found was, was, was interesting. Mm. Um, the aesthetics there, they've got the big shoulder pads, they're going for a similar look. There's a panel even, quite a few pages in, where you have the, the lead sort of female justicer, Bull, and she's, you know, um, you think you can stop me, little girl, on a technicality? And that... But that side profile of the helmet covering the majority of the face and you have the sort of the lower nose and the chin with that sort of jaw set is hugely reminiscent of like Brian Bolland uh, or uh, Steve Dillon, early Steve Dillon sort of Judge Dreadart. So that, that leaked out at me. Yeah, for sure. I can see that reference there. I mean, I did want to ask you about, because I honestly don't know, like, are there female judges in the Judge yes. Dredd universe? Okay. Judge Anderson. Yes, Judge Anderson, Judge, Judge Hershey. So yeah, no, the, 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 there's no, there's one of the weird things, uh, although it's a dystopia, and it's, it's, it is a dystopia, and again, I, I, I sometimes wonder about this, it's just never on their mind, because they, they were looking at a different satire. Like, there's no sexism, and there's no racism in Mega City 1. You know, it's just not, it's just never, it's never brought up. You know, female judges Judges are just as empowered as male judges and just as brutal. <laughs> and so it's, it's you know, to, to have her as a lead judge is quite cool. But again, like this could just be a Judge Hershey story or a Judge Anderson story or one of those. The other thing that was interesting, the character, I wanted to clarify, the character of Doug, Doug Ramsey, that's in the sort of the, the introduction when you see the overview view of the city, he actually says he's, a, he's an advocate, uh, he vividly protest, I'm an advocate of Kitty Pride. And I assumed he was supposed to be like her lawyer. Yeah, that, that, there's no, there's no, I was like, that's, oh this yeah, got, that wouldn't be. Even, yeah. yeah, I was like, wow, they've, they've actually got more rights than in Mega City yeah. 1, so that's quite cool. <laughs> yeah. right? So, um, one of the things that was interesting is that you say you get the Chief Justice, or what's he called, it's, it's obviously Brian, who comes in later. This idea of it, this is the event of a post-superhero civil war, and this is sort of like the enforcement that happened. It's very, that that feels, I mean, that's that actually is, is more of a, a head of dread in many ways um, because that's that, that sort of it, it's said and it's told but you don't actually get the story to well i think it was like 2013 they did the actual story telling the story of why the judges and the justice system was in, uh, enforced and there was there was a there was a sort of a, a civil war uh, where 
a, a prime minister better known for other things. In fact, one of them is, is TV appearances. His his sort of policies and stuff don't go well. And so he steals an election. And when he's tried to be taken out of office, uh, he fires the nuclear weapons in his own country. And so the, some of those stories feel incredibly uncomfortable when you read them now. Uh, and so, the, yeah, but there's this civil war. And so because, in order to just struggle to get a form of sort of you know control and normalcy and in the chaos they they enact this justice system and it just never goes away and this has this sort of similar feel but again you know when you see sort of brighton coming in at the end it feels like this world could be redemptive which is again you know is, is marvel the marvel obviously has that sense of hope i feel the sort of you know they've always got that slight redemption that possibility of it however i was curious that the um the, this world's version of brian less of the costume but he's got the haircut and it felt again there's a there's a nazi version of brian isn't there Kicking yeah, yeah. yeah and he's got Captain a very England. similar look to that's it there's yep very similar costume <laughs> yeah and that's so that sort of stood out to me so i was like you know it's almost like like you know i was going through the world like one world over from that and that's a similar sensibility so it's definitely got a dread vibe i mean there's a great speech as well where she is i think it's i'm not sure who it is it's, it challenges i'm not even brian but challenges the uh, bull on what it is a superhero is and she gives this description and they're like you, you've literally just described yourself and and again this is again this poking fun at the dread world where like if a if a judge was to describe a criminal you know oh yeah they're, they're, they're violent and brutal and sort of like you know continually sort of like causing chaos and you're like um yeah no that's that's you yeah <laughs> You are the same, you know, two sides of the same coin. So they've got that sensibility. And I, so I enjoyed a lot of this where I was like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. But I'll, I'll be more interested just, just from your point of view, actually, some of you guys sort of like, you know, when you, you, if you're less exposed to the, to, to the Judge Dredd and stuff, like, did, was there anything that you picked on or were there things where you're like, what, what does that mean? Or is this actually poking fun at anything? I think the main thing he's doing is leveraging sort of the, the reputation of Judge Dredd and the sort of mythology there in order to shortcut his world building. He's, he's asking the question, you know, what would a world with evil Ilyana and Kitty look like? And the answer is Judge Dredd. And that's one of the reasons why this thing can work in one issue, right? Because he's counting on his audience's familiarity with that intertext. Does it work in one issue for you? Because that was... <laughs> it does, but I want it so much bigger. Right. You know what I mean? So, well, so, so... yes, but no. <laughs> yeah, every time I, I mean, I've said this on the show before, every time I read one of these, I try to read it with two mindsets in my head. What do I look at this as, you know, PhD Mav in 2021? And what do I read of this as 15 year old, I guess I was 16 by the time this came out in 1990? You know, where was I at then? Where am, where am I at now? And how do I see it? And it works for me because I enjoy these characters. It works for me because I enjoy the exploration he's doing. But I wonder, and, and this was one where I was having trouble going back to my 1990s self. I said at the beginning, this, this, this issue confused me before because so much goes on i don't think i'd ever read a judge dread comic yet in 1990 i i was familiar with it i was actually oddly enough more familiar with martial law which is kind of a parody of judge judge dread and by parody i mean epic comics tried to do exactly the same thing and they just basically made their own version of the character um, <laughs> just to, just to intercede there but uh, yeah. martial law written and created by pat mills who actually yes. was the yeah. one of the founding fans of judge dread so yeah he's uh... but it's it calls itself a parody. It's just trying to redo it. 
I would say. Yeah. Is that fair? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and um, so I'd read a little bit of that. I don't know if I'd read any Judge Dredd yet, but I certainly wasn't super familiar with either of them. So things happen in this where I felt like I know they're pointing at something, but I'm not sure I know what. And now, you know, 30 years later, I don't know if I can if I can turn off the part of my brain that knows all the tropes and knows all the things. And, and, and so I don't know if this plays for people who don't have just a bunch of comic book knowledge already in their head. And so, I mean, Anna, you knew the least about it. So you're probably the best litmus test of any of us, whether or not it worked. Well, I didn't read it as a kid, though. I mean, I was probably 27. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, I was just like, I mean, I knew of the existence of Judge Dredd. But I mean, now know. even. Yeah. Like, even, yeah. I mean, you know, like, I mean, I'm a comic book scholar. I know right, like, the, the right. super basics of Judge Dredd. But I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think I needed that direct intertext necessarily to understand this. I mean, it's like a judicial world in which, you know, in right. tiny, like, I mean, that's just that's in all kinds of types of science fiction and movies and stuff. So, I mean, I feel like I didn't really need that necessarily. I can tell you the one that really bothered me um, then and I'm, I'm more accepting of it now because to me, as I said, and Andrew, I'm sure you'll talk about this more, Ilyana was always one of my favorite characters. I loved the Ilyana kitty interplay i loved any time since iliana was mostly starring in new Mutants at this point you know well she was dead by now but um but she had been mostly starring in new Mutants, and kitty had always been an x-men i loved any time they got to get together and you know sort of play together right so that was exciting to me when it starts mm -hmm. the story does this thing where you introduce this concept that kitty is this evil crime boss iliana's working with her and then right right away it pulls that out from under your under you and you've got this thing where brian's trying to save kitty but he doesn't know Oh, it's not the same kitty and then she's just dead and that so that story just didn't matter i felt like this is where when you said i wish this was five issues yeah if this had been five issues and i could have dealt with issues of this rather than two issues spoofing dirty pair i felt cheated in a way <laughs> well yeah yeah <laughs> and, that's and, true and, but right and and well but see that's the thing because i think this is largely trying to do the same thing that the dirty pair issues tried to do which is it parodied dirty pair by just doing dirty pair and i think this is just trying to do judge dread but this was more effective and i wanted more of it because i felt like it wasn't effective enough because it was too quick things happen very quickly here but i mean i think a lot of the things for me that are really effective about this issue i mean this is just a great issue of excalibur to me in the sense that if i paid like whatever however much this was a buck 50 or whatever for like this comic <laughs> this would be my money's worth this is just so much like everybody on the <laughs> team a, gets something great to do like everybody a gets a little here. story yeah. <laughs> there's so much comic and like there's a million little stories and i can see you know wanting it to be five issues because there's a million little stories that could have gone a million different ways but i just like this is a crowd pleasing issue there's like yeah. we haven't even <laughs> talked about the crit story yet and i'm just like i love it so much like it's mm -hmm. the thing obviously that i remember the most from this issue and it's like four pages it's like literally three or four pages of content but it's but there's, yeah, there's so a lot much happens. there there's yeah. so much and so like to me that's my argument in its favor that this is like a crowd pleasing yeah. issue to the extent that it packs a lot in and i think it's a lot better than something like the dirty pair you know homage or whatever we Way ended better. up calling that in the sense that a lot of the stuff that we have here like the ways that we're using this world are used to build character and we can get into some of the yeah. ways that that happens like i think it's character building for brian i think it's character building for megan i think it's character building for nightcrawler I think a lot of people get really valuable character building here. So in that sense, I think it's a little bit more Katie than an homage. She's not in it. Well, Katie doesn't because she's not in it, but yeah. No, I think she like... does. I think she oh, does. Oh, you think she does, even though she's yeah. not in it. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think it's great. I think it's a great issue. 
just, just to see, you, one of the things you, was, you guys are saying is like, you know, this it goes with the whole cross on caper. You know, it's, it's that thing of like, you know, quantum leap or sliders or anything yep. when you sort of go mm-hmm. to the world. One of the things, and this issue does it, like you say, this was five issues. It's sort of you, you, you are entering at one point and then it exits, and it exits on this sort of like. There's a whole discussion about why they reach this point of having this judicial system introduced, and there sort of the, the their Brian Braddock sort of comes in, and they're introduced to the fact that like you know this is the page before like their version the human version of Kurt and stuff sort of acknowledges that they're flying in. And he's like, wait a minute, they're flying. And so there's this whole acknowledgement of this world's about to change. Judge Ball even says at the end of it, she says, you know, the law is absolute, but not Im- immutable. Perhaps it's time for a change. And I'm, and then they leave. And I'm, all I'm thinking yeah. is, hang on. Never to be seen again. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wait a minute. This world's about to go through some sort of seismic shift. I want to see what that is. Like, where's that story? Um, <laughs> and that's for the courts for cross time. This is the, it is, the and that's, fifth yeah, time they've exactly. done that in the state yeah. crossover. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it sort of feels like almost like I say constant missed opportunities but you know like, hang on like you know if this was now if this had been done but like now if this was you know, present day now Marvel now this probably would be a five issue series and like, now we're going to have now we're going to have the Justice of Sprint off and you're going to get five issues of that mm-hmm. but I would you pick that up series. yeah I would I would pick that up <laughs> and I'll read it because I, I, the concept of this but also like some of the way it, it, it's done I think is fantastic and so yeah it, it, like you say it works as an Excalibur issue and it's fun enough doing this and reading this I was like oh yeah I've really want to go back to the beginning and you know and go through them so I'm, i am going to be listening along and i'm going to go back and start this but like i also want to explore this and so it's it's sort of it's both really exciting and frustrating at the same time but that's again it, it shows how good it is that i'm invested in both parts both sort of the ongoing and this new element that's just thrown in i think it's a really sort of it's just a, it's just a really well done and uh, a great achievement for a, an issue a comic from 1990 which i didn't expect much from can I just add my really brief fanfic pitch for if this was like a, a limited series about the Justicers, which is that they ha- bring up that comment about Kurt's going to be genetically modified to conform to, you know, human specifications. So my fanfic pitch is that Cadbury did look like Kurt and was genetically modified to be human. Oh, and that really? would be his backstory. See, I would, I would want the exact opposite of that. I don't I, think I, that that would, I think that that ruins the contrast between Cadbury and Kurt, but yeah. like, that's the story I would want to read the most I, if I, this was its own series. Oh, see, yeah. Well, See, I I would want to read that now that Cadbury knows that there's a mutant version of him out there. What does that do to his mm. psyche of yeah. like having been? Yeah, and this is again, this is me. Mutant in the Judge Dread world means something a little different than what mutant means in the Marvel world. Yeah, which I love that this issue sort of puts a pastiche on them. But just picking up on what Scott said about this would have been, and this and what Anna said about this being you know your fanfic version. If this were 2021, it would be something that continues. And I was just thinking back, just as you were talking about it, I'm thinking about like Age of Apocalypse. Age of Apocalypse was 1995. It's now 2021, and we're still seeing limited series comic events set in that universe. We just keep going back to it. It was like, oh, let's let's visit and see what this, you know, this bit of the story would be. It is odd that, you know, there's so much in the cross time caper that was generated that way. And mostly it's not picked up on sort of the modern version of Excalibur in you know post hickman does pick up on some threads but not the same way it's not like we're just going to revisit these worlds because you guys are right i absolutely want to know you know they've wrecked the entire status quo of this planet yeah now and and, and i want to know what happens next i really do the unfortunate thing is you say you know they haven't revisited this when they did secret wars recently hickman did you know uh, that was quite recent that's could be it when they did battle worlds and they did all those different things and then there's like two issue spin-offs and stuff they had one really not not in this not in this world 
okay. It, it was where Christ. I'm, I'm really sorry, I can't remember the name, but like it had it had Captain America and he hands it. Ah, uh, uh, what's the, the the Muslim girl who's got the sort of Excalibur? Um, oh, um, it's it's Phaser. Oh. Yes, yeah. she becomes in that she becomes Captain Britain, but they are set in a world in a Judge Dread pastiche, but it's yeah. a Punisher Judge Dread pastiche. And I remember reading that, and I was like, even then you're like, oh, this is really cool. And now I'm watching reading this and going, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had a world set up to do this why didn't they do it um and it's obviously not, no one's gone back and seen this issue so yeah i think a lot of it was just forgotten um a lot of the cross time i mean a lot of the early and this is one of the reasons we did this show right is because we we have this fondness for it, and i think there's a, certainly a niche fan base our fans thank you <laughs> that, that love this sort of thing but you know the marvel universe is big and and this was always and we talked about this on like the inferno issue right excalibur is has always been sort of the and also this is happening of, mm. of the x-men universe <laughs> <laughs> well let's get into speaking of interconnections and wow well, that's not a good transition but anyway let's talk about the <laughs> doppelgangers a little bit more because i want to give andrew a chance to talk about iliana a little bit Gosh. here and both of you to talk about what you make mm-hmm. of these doppelgangers of kitty and iliana because this is an intriguing scenario at the very least kitty as the crime boss and iliana as her duplicitous servant there's a lot of directions that we could go with this so what was your take on it andrew i mean we've talked on the podcast before doppelgangers often help us understand our heroes in new ways recontextualize things through the comparison so what did you make of this i'll let you sound off on it i think and i'll try to be brief here because i could go on for a while but um <laughs> I, I think it, it's again a wonderful intertext this this is claremont sort of showing us what Ilyana would have become had she not made her sacrifice right mm. uh, it, it's a great bit of like wing manning for louise simonson which i do think is really beautiful because claremont cultivated that character simonson gave her a stunning ending uh, and a couple of years later here we've got claremont adding weight and gravity to Simonson's story uh, by showcasing what Ilyana could have become and what the world might have become around her. So it's 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 hard to be like, here's magic, but she's evil, because that makes me sad because I'm a magic fan. Um, but it lends a poignancy to uh, an existing Ilyana story that I'm, I'm deeply, deeply attached to. What did you make of the relationship between Kit and Ilyana in this world, though? I mean, uh, what's going on here with them sort of introducing them in this way? I mean, I'm curious about that relationship yeah. the fact that kitty is her boss and you know there's a queer subtext with these characters and stuff like do we want to comment on that at all well, it's definitely there and we've seen it in excalibur before it's been at least referenced with the, the connection between um the soul sword uh, and kitty and we'll see it mm-hmm. you know taken up again in the future but i think the main thing is i i like that Ilyana betrays kit mm-hmm. uh because again showing that the, the darkness we're talking about it is stronger than the power of the super friends trio that we get uh, in yeah. this tower in this version of it. So I don't know. I, again, I, I think that just adds to the weight uh, of the previous Ileana story that Claremont and Simonson had crafted. Yeah, Mav, you're I, desperate to contribute. Go well, ahead. I, I I think it's important to understand the context of that previous version of Ileana and that previous version of Kitty, and to a lesser extent, Doug. To oh, me, Doug. I'd say there's less queer coding in this particular issue. Because for me, this is this is when everything has gone wrong, right? Ileana, what made her so fascinating to me as a 15-year-old struggling with my own individuality always and feeling like an outsider always right Ilyana, even more so than any other x-man is that she fits in nowhere even with her best friends her best friends know that she's secretly evil right like that's a that's always an issue for her but the lesbian subtext of Ilyana and kitty was there i, I almost said from day one not from day one because day one she was seven but from the time she comes back 
and Kitty and her become best friends on an equal peer level. Mm -hmm. It's always there. And so if anything, I'd say there's less of it here because things have gone so horribly wrong in this weird universe to where like I'm comparing the, oh my God, this is what happens when you don't have friends. Like this is, this is, you know, she, <laughs> like, like, like that's how I read it and, and reading again now. It's like, I read this and it's heartbreaking for me because like you just said, I want magic to be okay. I always yeah. just want her to be okay. <laughs> and I know that as a as a reader, the story of Inferno, of everything that happens in Inferno, losing her is the most heartbreaking part of Inferno to me. And yet it's why I remember that story so fondly to this day, because Inferno works for me because I lost my favorite character. Hmm. Like that's that's what makes it meaningful. So seeing that happen here matters. And it, it's why, it's one of the reasons why I wanted more of it. Because yes, I see that, you know, we're looking at a world where Ileana is secretly betraying Kit, you know, instead of Kitty. But they're barely together in this. And like, you know, that their relationship only lasts two pages and then she gets knocked out of a window and they never see each other again. So I missed that interplay, which is why I would have liked to see it for longer. Um, yeah, but there's an intensity there in terms of yeah, Kitty's reaction to the so. betrayal. So, I mean, yeah. it just seems mm -hmm. like there's a deep emotionality to yeah. the relationship because of that intensity to me. And I yeah. would love to see what caused it, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I, I, I mean, I feel cheated by it, but I, but I understand, you know, you know, I think it's a world where the cross time caper has been going on for a long time now and they just, and then ends next issue. So it's just like, all right, we're done with this. We're just done. And, and it's a shame because of everything that happened, this and probably, you know, the Billy the Kid issues, which remember are like two and you know, that's like two issues at the beginning. You know, those are my favorite two stories. And I wish this had that much space to breathe. Hmm as the Billy the Kid issues. Well, what was your argument about Kitty having character development despite not being here? Like the fact that she's a crime boss? No, the fact that obviously she doesn't change because we don't see her but this is through subtle appearances we get to see so much of how the rest of the world reacts to kitty the fact that brian is willing to lay down his life because mm. like he knows he knows where he is he doesn't know if this is the, he's run into other doppelgangers before but oh my god it's kitty she's falling guess i'm jumping out this window now guess i'm dealing with acid guess i'm you know like so much of it uh, of this is her relationship with excalibur even though it's not their real kitty right and then compare Comparing that to, we're not seeing the real Kitty, but seeing how Kitty, how Kit reacts to this version of Ilyana, seeing how Kit reacts to this version of Doug. So much of this is like, yeah, I know it's not our Kitty, but give, in the same way as like we've talked about with uh, Jamie Braddock um, in his multiple versions, last mm -hmm. issue, last couple issues, it's um, seeing how an alternate version of Kitty reacts to her compatriots and peers, I think matters for our understanding in context of what real Kitty is, particularly since we're going to have, you know, real Kitty is going to be separate from the team for a good bit coming up like the scene where she dies in brian's arms is really it's that's cares. a very he really cares and that's like yeah probably mm -hmm. one of my favorite brian moments from the series so far i didn't like because because I, I mean before this you don't even know that he i mean you know he's like ah i i like that kitty pride she reminds me of me when i was a young when i was a young lad that's basically that's the most he said about her mm -hmm. in 22 issues he has and, a great thought bubble too when he first yeah. dives out the window it says i'm sorry kitty i failed you hope dying mm -hmm. won't hurt as much this time hope mm -hmm. this is the last and it's yeah. like ah that's right he's depressed and suicidal and we haven't touched this was a great brian yeah, issue i thought that's efficient writing right there 
but like, well, but well, so it's efficient because you're talking about his trauma, but also the fact that I mean, I think that matters for their relationships. Like, so is Kitty yeah, really developing? Yeah. No, but the fact that Brian is apologizing to Kitty and they can't even liked her until that moment. Yeah. So that's why I say I think there's a lot of development for Kitty and she's not even in this. Well, what did you feel, Scott, about kind of the portrayal of Captain Britain and Megan here? Because you're someone who knows the original Captain Britain comics as well. And I did say that I thought that this was a decent portrayal of their relationship for once. And I mean, my argument on behalf of it would be I like that Megan changes into the form that can survive this world and is basically responsible for saving them. And they actually work together as a superhero team, which we don't always see them doing. But um, what was your kind of take on, on Brian? Here. Yeah, I, I always find I, mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. Actually, one of the things is it's always good to see um, having known where Megan come from. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that sort of thing. And going back to listen to what you guys have described as you know that childlike, that sort of traumatized individual to being someone who's strong and, and able to utilize her powers to save the day. Like she, she, she's the reason. Like Brian's over overwhelmed and. Mm-hmm she's the one that saves him so i'm like yeah that's cool like, I'm, you know that's badass like you know, she should be doing that but like, she's got one of the you know strongest powers not, she seems to fall out of the marvel universe much later on which is a real shame but the thing i find with brian uh, you know with, within this and captain britain is really that he he still is this character who although you know you're saying like you know Claremont is expressing his uh, trauma and his depression and everything. He still thinks with his fists. He He's still that sort of like that gung-ho, jump into action, you know, don't really consider the consequences first. It's sort of like, you know, swing first and then sort of try later on, like, you know, and to see that that's not working and then, that you know, Megan has to step <laughs> in, you know, it shows that sort of, because their relationship, and I think you know, one of the things you guys have said earlier when I was listening to the podcast is how sort of inappropriate or how sort of odd their relationship is and sort of inappropriate in some ways. And so to see that this, uh, there's a balance being gained at this point where, you know, he couldn't have done this alone is actually quite cool. It sort of gives her this this agency that I don't think is always evident. Even later on, like I know when she comes back and I sort of reference like the Paul Cornell run, like, you know, she's still this fairy sort of, you know, elfin character who's sort of like, you know, around but doesn't do a great deal. But to give her this sort of agency is actually really cool. Yeah, I did like the transition of her here where she is sort of this feminized character who's associated with the natural world and that's why the space is sort of affecting her so particularly negatively. And then she just turns that on her head by using her like feminized shape shifting powers to <laughs> shift into a forum that can defend herself and Brian and save the day in this world. And I really liked that that shift for her in this comic. One, one of the things I was really interested by actually as well, and again, sort of it's, I haven't got enough knowledge of the, of the whole thing, is when they return, you know, so she obviously beats those sort of demon sewer-dwelling creatures or whatever, and there's a con- confrontation with, with magic sort of against the justices. She comes back and she has taken on the form of Kitty, Mm, yeah. And she's, she she then uses that to confront uh, to confront Ileana, sort of having sort of heard what you know Kitty said because the dying Kitty says it was it was Ileana she did the dirty on me and I was curious about that because again it's quite a sort of strong stance just you know because she she's obviously chosen to take that form and to take center stage at this point and confront who we now know is sort of the villain of the piece in this world. Yeah, I liked that for her too, because she's done this trick before where she's sort of impersonated somebody and thrown somebody off and helped them save the day. But this is much more of an authoritative take on it. You know, I mean, she's sort of being like, I'm going to make up this plan myself and insert myself into the story. And so that is different, I think, than what we've seen from her in the past. So I liked that moment as well. Yeah, no, that was it really. I think it's it's cool to see them. I mean, it's, it's, I've always ummed and ahed about them as a pair because of no, I know where they came from. Mm -hmm. 
and and you know there's this thing of like should she, should he really be i don't know like is she, is she sort of enthralled to him for what he you know for his saving mm-hmm. of and all sort of stuff mm-hmm. and it always feels a little uncomfortable so mm-hmm. to see her gaining something and you know and i i know down the line that you know obviously that they're still together and stuff so i'm curious now to see how that relationship does grow over the next hundred so issues yeah i don't want to talk about the current <laughs> comics because i did suggest in my last review of them that there's at least a technical possibility kurt is the father of megan's child but um i don't want to talk about that we'll just throw that out there really hoping that's not the case um anyway that's a huge like bombshell thing to throw into that but that's already out there on the internet that's not news um anyway I've been very patient. So can we yeah. talk about this Kurt story and the oh, are they, Kurt in the story? <laughs> I've been so patient. Like, does anybody do you guys care about this story or is it just me? Is it just gonna be me sounding off on do, it? I'm no. actually more interested in the Megan of it, but sure, yes. Yeah, no, I want to talk about that too, but they're inextricably related. So yes, absolutely. I mean absolutely. I mean, I have thought so much about this Kurt Cadbury thing, and there's nothing there. Like, it's just kind of a gag. But on the other hand, there's a lot there, because this is the first time that we have a human counterpart of Kurt in a comic. And it's really interesting, because it's there's a lot of questions that are always... I believe so. I, I never thought about that. I, but uh, yeah, it might be. I never... He certainly has lost his powers before, but maybe... Not prior to this. Wow, I hadn't really thought about the the chronology of it before just now. So we've talked a little bit in the past about questions of race related to Kurt. So that's interesting to me here. You know, the fact that his doppelganger is white is interesting to me. It's not that interesting in the sense that doppelgangers can be any race or gender. And so it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But it's still interesting to me the way that's the person that he's juxtaposed and the ways that he's juxtaposed. Like that little scene with the four panels where, you know, he first confronts him and he like realizes that it's him and he has the line about that he has a tail too that's just i'm like just swooning all over myself over those four panels those four panels are like a fan servicey thing of showing why kurt is not the traditional jerkwad male action hero and why he's better and why he's more desirable and it's just four panels but it really does that effectively both between the visual contrast between them and his attitude toward the fight the jerkwad guy is just trying to like kick and punch him and kurt's like just avoiding him like effortlessly and of course using his tail perhaps one of the most graphic symbols of his difference is just so wonderful and yeah i just loved every part of that so much and it's such a little thing but i mean it's just a little thing that's just part of the reason why i love this character so much yeah i think the lesson that kurt is learning in this scene is that like the value of his non-conformity mm-hmm. that if he did get this this, this heart most wish um, he might have become a tool uh, and thus gaining this sort of perspective on the value of his outsider status which i think is really important for kurt as a character question for anna do you think by now kurt still wishes to be normal because no in in 2021 i don't think he did his first appearance you don't think no. okay because i don't know i always read I always read earlier Kurt as though he was sort of jealous. And by now, I don't think he is at all. No, and I don't think so, he ever was. You don't think he ever was? And, okay, so that's just me. I, I always see a transition. I, I, I there's there's different readings of him on that level, and I know different mm-hmm. fans have different investments in him too. Like I'm always emphasizing him as a shameless character. Some fans do see that shame in him more, and I think that both readings are kind of valid. But definitely, mm-hmm. my reading of him is more that the ways that he's unique, at least was unique when he was introduced into this universe, is the idea that he had his powers from birth, and we didn't get his full right. backstory, or not his powers, but his his physical mutations his at least, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. And that gives him a very different relationship to his body. Like, that is normal for him. So why would he have a desire to return to human? Like, that's Beast's story, but that's not Kurt's story. Because he doesn't Mm -hmm, have, like, a human counterpart. To me, it's like the idea of 
and I, I've mentioned this before, but like the story um, from the late 90s where the high evolutionary demutates everybody, and it's a dumb story, but it's really, really accurate in terms of, to me, Kurt's character. He gets turned into a human and he just hates it. He has like body dysmorphia, like he can't handle it at all. He's like, I can't even walk in a straight line without my tails. My hands have too many fingers. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. <laughs> and I'm like, of course, that's how you would react. Like his right. body, that would be the same way that one of us would react to being changed into Kurt, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. that is his body. There is no human reference point like i mean he, he would be no horrified normal. yeah it, it's it's too it's not his normal rather exactly but now he exactly. does have that reference point in the form of cadbury this this mm -hmm. tool of a fascist government yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure there's, right there's two things i want to throw in actually because i think you know you say about kurt and his, his desire to be normal i think I, I i've never read whenever i've read the comic book version let's say the 616 version i've never read that as wanting to be normal is probably the wrong word, but to be human, yeah, to sort of to lose his uh, his identity and his mutant powers. But I know that they've used him as in that position if they haven't had access to be in other media. Like I know it comes up in the X Men cartoon, yeah, yeah, um, X Men Evolution, and a few other sort of like um, side comics and stuff. So I think he acts as a sort of um, a cipher, you know, for that when when they want to in other in other media. But um, I've never read this version of Kurt in that way. I'm going to flip this little scene in its head because one of the things that there's some elements of this I, f I find it I found interesting coming from a dread point of view really I suppose is Kurt's met other versions of himself like you know he, he mm -hmm. he's been through this multiverse and he sort of goes he's accepting this point of view. oh yeah there's other versions of me. this version is is human you know so there's that variance but Cadbury's world which is really bizarre saying that as well because there's actually because Cadbury obviously is based after Cadbury's chocolate and there's a place really near close to me called Cadbury's World. So, um, <laughs> so Cadbury, his world is shattered because he doesn't know that there's the the multiverse. He has, as you said, brainwashing exists in this sort of fascist anti mutant world, and he represents it as a part of the law enforcement. And so to be to to be confronted by a mutant version of himself. You know, it must be pretty shocking. Like it puts all your values in question, and obviously that's why he sort of stutters and hesitates. And, and you know, Kirk's able to take advantage of it when they fight. But I thought that was more interesting. Again, it goes back to this other world where, like, you know, this version of of Kirk, this Cadbury, yeah, he's having to face off against this concept of like, you know, you say about well, if Kurt was to be human, he could be this tool. Well, for Cadbury, just as easily, he could be a mutant and therefore be a prisoner. So there's that version as well. And the reason I find it interesting is that Judge Dredd himself, Judge Joseph Dredd, is in fact a clone. He was a, is a clone of the first Chief Judge Fargo, and he had a brother. They went to the academy to get the Rico, and Rico is his obviously exact double. They are clones, uh, and Rico went bad, and and it's it's actually Dredd who took him down because of he, you know he's in, he, he sort of basically sort of starts to become a bit of a crime boss with the Mega City, and so there's this confrontation of, of him and his they call him brothers, but these two clones of each other. And it's this question of like, well, how come one can be this sort of you know the figure, the sort of like the supreme figure of sort of this fascist authority, and the other one gives into an element of anarchy and becomes a criminal, but they are the same. You know, he does. He actually judges. Rico, he sends him off to, uh, they have a prison planet called Titan, he spends sort of years there. And so it sort of echoed that for me, this idea of having to face off against someone who is you, but is almost like, you know, not just your opposite, because that's like his thing, but like a corrupted version of you is, is not just a, you know, oh, I could have been you. It's like, no, you are literally me and a variant of me. So I, I sort of took that from a, from this from a dread perspective as well. Um, but, I, you know, yeah, 
I know this is obviously the, the Excalibur book, but I actually felt kind of sorry for Cadbury in that world. We're like, yeah, his world, <laughs> his his world's been kind of shattered. Where he's like, yeah, no, and you know, uh, he then it sort of, it sort of never picked up. But it was it was kind of interesting to me that that sort of that that's the duplicate that they sort of you know they have this confrontation with. I mean, yeah, I think if you're like coming at it from like an Excalibur and Kurt fan, you're just like, <laughs> man, this loser that reacted this way to Kurt, he's the worst. Because I love Kurt so much, so of course. <laughs> Let's talk about the Megan aspect of the story. So the alternate universe Megan aspect and the little vignette that Kurt gets with your here. Now, there's things I love and things I don't love about this little vignette, and I'm sure we're going to talk about both. I will say just off the top, the thing that I do love is that it's her monstrous form that he's interacting with primarily, and that creates a suggested affinity for them that we haven't had teased out properly in the comics, I would argue, up to this point. I mean, we've talked about nice guy tropes in relation to Kurt, and that is something that you can read into him in terms of, does he have an affection for her? because she's a pretty blonde lady or is it more complicated than that and i think having them together in prison fellow mutants fellow monsters fellow persecuted outsiders and they have that affinity on that level i think that's really important to adding something more complex to their relationship so i did really like that aspect of it a lot but there's problems in terms of what happens here i mean do i do you want to take a stab at it andrew i'm sure you're gonna have feelings about it as the president of the megan yeah. fan club um <laughs> I don't know. I'm kind of going a few different directions on this. I, I think, <laughs> yeah, the problematic elements are clearly there. I really don't like the idea that this is Megan. Has she not blossomed as yes, our version did? It's not good. It's not good. Because I don't think she is blossoming. No, it's not no, good. She's, she's in a really bad relationship. In point <laughs> yeah, of fact. Um, but I do like the scene of just, and it's three panels uh, of just her kind of dying, going from monstrous to these flickering lights to this oh, moment really? of absolute peace on kurt's shoulder like i know i shouldn't like it but i feel okay. the pathos in that scene for some reason i mean kurt's oh yikes face is like oh God. I, I feel for him i mean well i mean okay so like let's put a finer point on what we're i mean i'm assuming what we think is problematic here is the lack of agency for the megan character the fact that she's yeah, being yeah. present in this story to serve a very stereotypical chivalric fantasy for kurt right and she's fulfilling his ego by transforming into him as she dies and then is like it's okay you did what you did and it was worth it even though by kissing me i got shot i mean it's not great it's a die but i'm happy it's Barely not like, great kind of like, like dying was worth it killed. yeah dying yeah. was worth it just to be kissed on the cheek by you and die on your shoulder it's not great yeah. <laughs> so that's the harsh reading of it but i do like those final panels in the sense that i do think there's a suggestion of kurt having to reckon with his actions there i mean you know having to see her transform into the version of himself that he's most invested in and then watch her die on his shoulder it's not like he's coming out of this unscathed but he does though that's the problem yeah well she doesn't come up again Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm going to assume he's profoundly affected by that, even if we're not going to see that explicitly <laughs> said in the comics. I mean, he's certainly like really angry when he like busts into the building in the next scene. And I mean, his face yeah, yeah. here too is like really well done. I mean, Davis is off and up. It's just so good at communicating so much with a facial expression. And I do think that choice of Kurt's face as she's dying, like he's just, oh God, <laughs> you know, like, it's just, there's a lot going on there. This is, I think, another one of those ones where it, it, it's a drawback of, five issues worth of story being told in one mm -hmm. issue. I like this scene. I like what happens. I think it's problematic because it's rushed. I think that's the problem. Like I like we can't spend too much time giving alternate version of Megan number 478 more agency than this. 
but I do think she allows us to understand 616 Megan a little better because I presume I don't like the, I don't like the usage of the if she hadn't blossomed I don't like that but um Such <laughs> but a I do line. Oh. yeah but I'll, I'll just call that bad writing on Claremont's part to allow the rest of it to be good <laughs> good writing like I, I like that it is showing a Megan without the baggage of a Brian um mm. or a Kurt you yeah. know it's a Megan that grew up in hell but she's <laughs> in the hell of Judge of, of Judge Dreadland right but it does show that she has a life beyond this that she can make choices and it shows that I assume that 616 Megan is just like this person which is she just wants to be loved like everybody else. Like the fact that Kurt, who is a demon in and of himself and might have his own, if I want to be cynical about it, you know, Kurt's hoping that she can survive so that I can have my own Megan too. I can take her with me, right? Like, like but I think that from this Megan's point of view, someone loved me despite me being a monster. I like that that's, that it shows that that's what she wants out of life. I find it a little weird that, and because that happened, I get to be beautiful for 12 seconds before I die. And also blue because that's what he wants. So like it kind of, yeah, that's not a great. It, it's kind of tr- it's kind of tropey at the end. I get it, but I I like the underlying sentiment that I think I, I'm just gonna imagine that this was one you know that there were five issues of this story and there's one devoted to Kurt's story with this Megan and that's where it and and it's just better told because it's got breathing room. <laughs> so and I mean there just is something too where it, it's hard for me to defend this because I'm not saying like it's a good fantasy because romantic fantasies are often problematic. But I mean the mm-hmm. fantasy as a female fan who's like basically in love with Kurt I mean it's like he's gonna like be this fellow monster who's gonna save me and we're gonna go off and be monsters together it's like that's kind of what I I know I don't want to die in the story but like the other elements of it are exactly what I want out of a Kurt story because like we go hard on his chivalry but it's just like chivalry can be a very appealing fantasy that's not necessarily evil depending on how it's handled right and so I just I just want to make that point because we sometimes just go hard on this is just Kurt's fantasy and I'm like it's my fantasy too though Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's good. I, I think, I mean, what I just said, I don't know. How, I don't, what's the alternative, right? The alternative is that he saves her and then she goes on. She comes and along like, and joins the And she comes along and joins the team and we have two <laughs> Megans and, you know, hey, there's one for each of you, which was the no, problem no, with Dirty no, Pair, right? Like there's no good, there's no good other way out of it. So I understand. She stays it, in this world and, and gets to be her own person is the better okay. version of it. Well, sure. One of the things, if you're going to do that, they, this book ends, this, sorry, this, this issue ends with a seismic shift in this world you know they actually say well the law can change and you know even sort of like their version of captain britain of brian sort of says you know maybe it's time to do something you know, wh- why could she not be brought in if she's gonna have her own agency or something brought in then as a, as a representative of the humans of the mutant population let her not only survive but then through her surviving and gone through this is sort of like you know she her understanding and growth is in a, a, the ability to represent the mutant population give her yeah. she doesn't have to go along give her a purpose in this world that because allows she her got to fridged have... because she got yeah, fridged exactly. to allow Kurt's emotional growth also, yes that's I, why <laughs> i have real problems with some of this but it, 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 the problem being that i have is that so she dies in this this like you know the little fantastic four car um <laughs> kurt then uses it to break through that's it yes did and he it, leave her in there? Did yeah. he just bury her? Where's her body? I was going to bring that up at the end because that's my problem too. And I and I know Anna's going to say headcanon. She he he landed, dropped her off, buried her, and then got back <laughs> in. Of course, no, he did me, something like, very respectful. 
<laughs> yeah, I thought I thought the same thing. Did he battery ram the, her with her body? That's because that's how it comes across. That's how I read it. Because the other thing I, I was curious about is when when she shot, she is shot by Bull, just just as a Bull, and he never confronts her. Like Kurt is never given the opportunity to confront her. He takes on part takes on Ileana, but he is, is the demon thing. But then at the end of it, it's actually Kurt who says like, "Well, give us a chance, and we'll be on our way. You'll never see us again." And I'm like, "Hang on a minute, like." <laughs> <laughs> This is the person, and granted, like she, you know, there must be some rules because she's a representative of law enforcement in this world. But you've you've literally sort of like you know you've started to bring down this society's justice system, yet you're not willing to confront this one person who you've just seen kill someone that you've saved. <laughs> rushed is the point. I think rushed is yeah. this thing of this issue. Like if this mm-hmm. was a five six issue run, all of this could be addressed. Like you could really expand on some of these characters and have those confrontations and have those uh, discussion points. But yeah, it's almost like, you know, right, we've hit that mark. We've done this bit. He's escaped. She's been redeemed, or you've seen some, you know, you've seen this element. She's been fridged, to be fair. Move on, as you sort of said, move on to the action pack finale, and then we go go on to the next issue. And so, yeah, that, that it was the sort of the aftermath that I had problems with rather than the yeah. interactions. Yeah, I think that that's fair. I'm gonna like head candidate a little bit too, <laughs> just once again, just because. Okay, like I do think Kurt is someone who is very emotional, but he's also very pragmatic, and he is somebody who's been through. I mean, we don't talk about Kurt's horrible trauma in his life that much. He's got just his backstory is a mess. Like he had to kill mm-hmm. his own brother, and then people thought he was a demon and tried to kill him. He's got a terrible backstory, and so yes. like I just think like in terms of his reactions to things, I can completely believe that this could happen and he is completely traumatized by it and he just swallows all of that and doesn't bring it up because that is exactly the way he approaches life you know like he is a person that internalizes everything and doesn't complain and looks on the bright side of things and so I almost think it actually would be out of character for him to yell at Bull because one of the reasons why him yelling at Brian in Sword is Drawn is so shocking is that he never does that hmm. and like to and me I read down Kitty from yeah. doing that in an earlier yeah issue, right yeah exactly and I think that that's actually very in character for him and it doesn't make him a bad person it's just a result of some of the ways that he's very emotionally closed off because of the ways that he deals with trauma i mean not unlike the way that we've talked about rachel in the past right it's just something that i feel like is always implicit with kurt that doesn't get talked about directly as much and i actually think it will get talked about a little bit when davis is on the book and we have a lot of monologue with kurt but um that's my pr manager defense of that scene because (laughs) i did feel like even though it's unsatisfying it was in character for him he also doesn't really have qualms about using people's bodies as as, as weapons in explosions. Yeah, let's yeah, we've seen it before. So. <laughs> <laughs> right you got to undercut all my good work, Mav. <laughs> all right, That's what we've I'm got, here for. We've gone on for a while, so we will wrap it up there. But um, final thoughts on this issue: things that you're desperate to bring up that we didn't get a chance to talk about. Oh, there was there was one scene near the beginning where um Alistair and Widget are losing their cool. I like that as like a kind of connection to the audience about how long the cross time capers. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I thought that was an important touch to kind of show that that transition. I like that good one. Did you was yours already complaining about the car thing, Mav? Yeah, mine was the car thing. <laughs> mine, mine was totally. I, I mean, I, I was like, I was like, I'm leaving this for last. I just want to point out that like he used her body as a battering ram, and then Scott pointed it out. So I'm, that, that, was, I'm give, that was my final thought. <laughs> I'm gonna give Scott the last word before we do the letter column because I've got a good one. But um, my just tiny little thing is I, I just have to say that Kurt's body language towards this issue was just so well done like from the first page where they're all standing there and I love just the little thing after they crash the train through the penthouse and he's on the ground kind of injured and exhausted and that was just like a nice little thing to 
show some of the consequences of like this violence and sort of this grueling trip that they've been on. And I just, I always love seeing Davis draw Kurt, but I think because we haven't had it in a few issues, I was just so appreciative and he did some really nice work with him in this issue. Um, Scott, final thoughts. Nothing, nothing to do really. It's, it's a really good issue. Really enjoyed it. Uh, lots sort of taken, and it's definitely made me want to go back and read more Excalibur, which is always a good thing. Um, the one thing, I, the one thing I wanted to raise that sort of hasn't been mentioned is the cover. Um, yeah, we didn't talk about it. Uh, as you said, Davis's art is always fantastic, but the cover just feels like you know it's got this this sort of wanted dead or alive, the Kitty Pride, and it's got the death of Kitty Pride and all that. So it's, it, it, I love that it's got the sort of uh, the tease of what's going on. I mean, it's not really what it is, but. It has echoes of sort of uh, days of future past, but but also just it, it feels like it could be you know the dread pastiche is in there as well. It's just it's just a really cool cover. Like it's a really well done, a really nice cover. So yeah, it's really I, I just it's a great issue. Just a good read, and I'm, I'm I'm glad I got to read it really for for all the bits and pieces. We are so glad we got to read it with you. Um, I'm just gonna quickly spotlight a letter from the Sword Strokes letters page, more for the editorial response than for the actual letter. So this is a letter from David Phil in Grand Prairie, Alberta. Um, so mostly the letter is kind of complaining about various X-Men titles, and then they say, however, through it all, Excalibur remained a creative light on the horizon. Now, finally, a power pack is showing signs of becoming worthy of its potential. Plug, plug for all you comics purchasers out there. X-Factor is in a plot that has been thoroughly enjoyable despite its total irrelevance to everything else that's going on in the universe. Even the X-Men is looking up. Only the New Mutants remains lost, and even they could be unexpectedly saved by a little quick action on somebody's part. Excalibur was there first, however, and for that you have my eternal respect, my admiration, and my undying support. May Excalibur never be sheathed, and until the Punisher accidentally cracks a grin, make mine marvel. And then um, Terry Cavanaugh um, tells him about some exciting new developments that he hopes are going to make him even happier on the X-Men books. He says, We're glad we helped you maintain faith in the Marvel Universe during your trying period with our other books, David. Hope you'll check out the new mutants in the near future, because with a hot new direction, hot new characters, and a hot new artist, Rob Liefeld, it should be right up there. You must get... It should be right up there on your must-get list alongside Excalibur. So, David, I don't know how you reacted to the to the shift to the Rob, but I hope you were as happy as Terry Cavanaugh hoped you would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they also around this time they were they were just about to cancel Power Pack on poor David here too. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <wow>. <laughs> they just destroyed his world. <laughs> well, he still had Excalibur. <laughs> I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. So we will end things there. Other than Scott, we've already plugged some of your work, but let's remind everybody again, if you want people to find you online, where can they find you and what work of yours should they be checking out? Yeah, well, let's do the work first. So yeah, we've said Judging Dread, uh, examining Judge Dredd in his wide world from Sequart, available on Sequart and Amazon. Uh, I also want to shout out all the books from Sequart. Sequart uh, do a whole host of books sort of doing uh, accessible analysis of comics. Uh, and uh, for you guys in particular, there's a book called The Best There Is at What He Does, examining Chris 
Claremont's oh, yeah. X-Men by Jason, Jason Powell. Powell. And so, yeah, there's a whole host of books on there about creators and comic runs and all kinds of different pieces. So sequart.org. Seriously, go check it out. It's a fantastic website. Those of articles and stuff on there as well. Uh, for me, uh, I'm also contributing two more things. I've got an essay coming up on, on uh, the Saga of the Swamp thing, and I've just started. I'm in the early doors. I'm in the exciting part of the project. I'm doing a book on Moon Knight, a collection nice. of essays about Moon Knight. Uh, and I've had some really fascinating contributors coming forward on that one. So that's going to be exciting. Uh, if you want to come find me and my podcasts, you can find me on Twitter. It's at 20th Century Geek. And that's 20th Century Geek. Uh, and 20th Century Geek is just me sort of basically looking at all things from the 20th century. Everything, comic books, <laughs> films, everything I fancy. It's basically me going, oh, that's interesting, and doing whatever I want. Uh, I also have a fortnightly podcast with Julian Darius, who uh, I met through Sequoia. It's the mo- sci-fi movie podcast. We talk and break down and discuss all kinds of uh, sci-fi movies. We recently just did, uh, we just talked about The Man Who Fell to Earth the other day. Both really enjoyed oh. that. That's a fascinating conversation. Uh, and that's uh, so po- at Pod Time Space. So you can find us on there as well. And all those podcasts are available on all uh, usual podcast catches. Amazing. Yes, we will link all of those things on our Twitter and our show notes. Thank you so much again, Scott, for joining us. No, thank you for inviting me. This has been fantastic. Really good fun uh, and a great opportunity to plug the book and to talk to some great people about comics. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 25, in which we will be discussing Excalibur number 24, Tempting Fates, in which the cross-time caper barrels to its sort of epic conclusion, and <laughs> Satter Courtney helps Kitty celebrate turning 15 again. There's a lot of complicated gender and sexuality stuff to talk about in that issue, and we'll have a very exciting guest to help us carefully navigate it. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Podcast podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another rebellious conversation thank you scott for helping us pass judgment thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for a truly <laughs> epic theme song play us out did you like i worked hard on that outro yeah, no, no, I like that one. <laughs> <laughs>